Sometimes the, the process of respiration breathing is used as a metaphor for the certain aspect of the practice. <clears throat> we exhale uh, what we don't, what's toxic, the body doesn't need it any longer. And that makes room for fresh oxygen, which we do need. So it's a process of letting go of the old, making room for the new. Um, and the spirit of this practice is exactly that. That's what Michael and I have been talking about all week, is wholeheartedly entering into what you're doing. And when it's over, exhale, it's over. And make room for what's next. And then it's the same thing. We keep going like that. Now, clearly, uh, if you set that up as an ideal and then strive for it, you can do that uh, as long as you're, you don't get <clears throat> overwhelmed by how often you don't do it. Because it's a new skill. We're very practiced at living elsewhere than wherever we are. So it's like any other, anything else that we're learning. It's an ongoing process. If you haven't already, I hope you've picked up that handout. Many of you have gotten it already. By Hokusai on, on drawing. If you haven't, read it. Read it. it uh, to me, it's a very beautiful statement of what we're attempting to convey here. Uh, that is, the practice, wisdom is learning how to live. And it's not that you finally, I'm there. I mean, you can think you're there, but life will keep testing you. And you have to pay attention to the consequences of your action, and you have to be willing to learn from it. So uh, it's all available. So the, all we're doing is saying that uh, for us human beings, it is possible to redirect our energy, to learn how to do that and to see where we direct energy that is futile, that brings suffering for us and other people. And little by little, uh, allow that lesson to sink in so that it's real, it's bone deep, not just conceptual, not just even emotional, that we really get it and it becomes part of us. And then it's a, wisdom is a kind of intelligence. It's an intelligence that has to do with clear seeing the situation, or starting with ourselves, as we are. And uh, if you've tried to do that, and I think you all have all week, you'll see that very often uh, the mind is not fresh. It's, a, it's clouded over. Uh, what's come before is between it and whatever is here. Uh, I thought of a simple-minded example. Um, let's say you have a calculator to add up numbers, and you put in Two, two, two. And then you calculate, and that's what? Two, four, <laughs> six, right? Okay, and then a little bit later, you have a new set of figures to add up. If you don't clear, and then you put in other numbers, uh, the six is there, and then you put in the other numbers, and then people say, what kind of counting is this? Where did you go to school? Uh, we have six again, but it adds up to 18. Because... We haven't cleared, and so we're adding on what was, which is no, it's useful in that moment, in that endeavor, that activity. Uh, and the awareness we're talking about, I like to call it self-knowing. I didn't make the term up, but I like it because it's in the active presence. It's I-N-G. It's not knowledge. Knowledge is something we accumulate. The awareness is something that's valuable. You see things in that moment, and then you clear so that the next moment, you have a better chance of the next moment being experienced freshly and accurately. So that if it's a snake, 
We see it as a snake, not as a rope. If it's a rope, we see it as a rope, not a snake. So we're learning how to do that. And then the seeing, very often the seeing is the action. Because when you see things clearly enough, it's obvious. So that's why we're emphasizing awareness, awareness, mindfulness, attention, again and again and again, because that's what makes the difference. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's take, a, we're taking the practice home. And in one sense, as I hope we've been trying to emphasize, um, it's just another slice of life. It's no different than what we've been doing here. It's not, now, it is different, obviously. Suddenly, people are going to be talking, cars are going to be whizzing by you, uh, trucks, if you're on the road, and so forth. But every situation, for example, has a transition. If you come home from work, uh, you might be tired and just want to take a break, 10 or 15 minutes, and then, and then begin whatever is next. So, of course, there's going to be uh, a difference between here and there. But we don't have to make that difference stand for this is where the real Dharma work goes on. Everything else is cute, it's nice, uh, but we do it in order to earn the money to get back here for the next visit. Because most of your life is then going to be spent doing, you know, yeah, it's necessary, I have to feed myself and my family or whatever. Um, what we're trying to say is, uh, the arrow is the target's everywhere, just like in that archery example, so that nothing's left out. It's a whole life. Now, let's take the sitting practice. Some of you are very, very new to this. If you, those who've been around the block a while, please be patient and see if it, if it helps you. I don't know. Um, a typical question is, how long should I sit when I get home? Here, you don't have a choice. We do it. And you may like it. In one sitting, you're happy that the bell hasn't rung. The next sitting, you hate that it hasn't rung. But it's out of your hands. When you get home, it's up to you. And so whether you use a stick of incense or a clock or a timer or whatever you use, well, how long should I sit? Well, the one easy solution is 40 minutes in the morning or 20, 40 minutes in the morning, 40 minutes in the evening. That would be easier for us. We just say that and we're done. Um, but I, through experimentation and observation, I found this, the individual differences are so great that for one person, 40 minutes is an eternity, and it makes the practice uh, become grim and dreary and a burden, and soon you won't want, it's too medicinal. You won't want to do it. For another person, 40 minutes is just getting warmed up. This is very much an individual matter. So let's say when you go home and you don't have us setting the time, and you find that roughly 25 minutes seems, on the average, is good for you, then set it at 25, but go to 30. Put, add a, give yourself a little bit of a challenge. If it, typically it's 20, make it 30, but don't make it more than you, uh, so much that it becomes uh, onerous, and it becomes a burden, and that it becomes grim. And let that grow naturally, it will. More and more, 25 becomes 30, 30 becomes 35. And it's not so much a matter of time. Well, obviously, a certain amount of time is essential. You sit for 30 seconds a day and then say, I don't know, this hasn't made any difference in my life. <laughs> of course not. So use you know, common sense. Don't you? Common sense is still important. It's a kind of wisdom. Um, <clears throat> how often, when, I don't know. A good time for many of us, most of us if you can, 
is certainly to begin the day. Let's say you wash up. It's a nice way to get the day going. Uh, it's to, it sets the day, uh, the tone for the day, which is to be awake. You, and to sit quietly with yourself, no matter what technique or method you use, uh, every day is not a luxury item. Life has always been trying, demanding, even in ancient times. Now it's extremely busy. And there's a lot going on. I don't have to spell that out. So uh, I don't think it's a luxury to devote a certain amount of time each day to just simply sit and be with yourself as you are. And that's, you, that's it. Uh, whether you can use the breathing to help you. If that, if that is something you're drawn to and it does help you, great, or not. The method isn't as important as taking a, a respite from responsibilities and going here and going there and scheduling and so forth and just allowing what's there to be there, and then from that place, entering into whatever your day is like. Um, <clears throat> if you can do it a second time, wonderful. To begin with, most people fit the sitting around their ongoing schedule. If you take to this practice, you may find, as some of you I know have, you start reorganizing your life to protect the practice because it becomes that valuable to you. So that you, when you think of how you're scheduling things, you do it in such a way as to try to protect periods of, of uh, solitude when you sit with yourself uh, in, because you value it. Uh, I can't make that happen by telling you to do that. That's something that either will happen to you or it won't. Now, there have been a number of, uh, I just want to very briefly sum up the sitting practice. Um, it will, be, it will be brief, and there have been a few questions, and maybe I can clarify. I couldn't answer all of them. On, um, I'll do my best uh, that were written to me. Um, <clears throat> we've been emphasizing sitting and breathing, some aspect of the breath, one way uh, to settle down, enable the mind to become more calm, thoughts to, become, uh, to, to not be as um, frequent and as powerful and not monopolizing our attention. Um, <clears throat> anapana sati, mindfulness of breathing. Now, this can be a complete method. Some of you who have been reading a book, Breath by Breath, uh, were a little confused. There are 16 steps in the classical teaching of the Buddha in this sutra. Um, it's good to read through them, but if you're going to try to do all 16, it's really not necessary because you'll give yourself a migraine headache. Uh, it's just too much, and, you, and it becomes too heady, too conceptual. If one step pops out and you're really drawn to it, then trust that. It's what we call a Dharma door, opens up for you. But what, what Michael and I have been teaching uh, for Anapanasati is first the breath, sitting and breathing. And then if you're, very, if you're really drawn to the breath, maintaining that awareness of sitting and breathing, but then expanding, expanding your field of attention and you're anchored in the sitting and breathing so that, let's say, fear comes up, not the word, the energy. Uh, as you breathe in and breathe out, you're aware of fear. Now, now breath is not exclusive. It, you, you loosen your grip on it, and it, sometimes it recedes to the sidelines, but it's always there. That's part of why, for some people, it's extremely useful, and it's portable. You can take it anywhere. It's with you. Wherever you go, it's there, or you ain't going to be there. I mean, your body will. Um, so, uh, so that is one simple model. It, 
for those who are asking these questions, it's called a condensed method. Um, and it's condensed in that all 16, it's not Vipassana light, L-I-T-E. Because when the mind becomes calm and you sit and breathe and have no agenda, what do you think is going to turn up? What's going to turn up is what's there. And so then what we've been calling sometimes choiceless awareness or open awareness, uh, and you're using the breath as like a good friend uh, to accompany you in whatever is, is, uh, turns up. But many people are not that drawn to the breath. So you, people, some people prefer to use the breathing just to calm down and then just to sit. That's fine. Whatever works for you. Uh, and things change as you practice. Uh, your concerns, your, uh, what you're drawn to, what works for you, what's helpful, it will change as life changes. So in a nutshell, now, the breath can help during daily life. Uh, moments when you're, let's say, there's a traffic jam and you feel yourself becoming irritable and impatient. Uh, you don't need the breath. You can just be aware of that. But for many people, see, what breath awareness does, because it's right there, it's so easy and accessible, and some people say, I, I'm not a Buddhist. I don't want to be a Buddhist. Fine. Is the breath Buddhism? I don't think the Buddha has a patent on breathing. You know, it's, it, it, humans breathe. So don't worry about it. You're, you're not a Buddhist. It's okay. I am a Buddhist. That's good, too. You know, the Buddha gave this method. It's Buddhist meditation. Anapanasati, Majjhima Nikaya 118. Oh, great. Okay. Okay. Um, so at that point, it's such a simple, it, it's soothing. It's simple, it, keep, it helps keep things simple and helps you stick in the state of the present moment. Each breath happens now. And of course, it, it requires awareness and seeing that the light has changed, you know, and that you move. Um, this quality of open attention, you already have it. Now, breath awareness or metta or whatever you use to calm and concentrate the mind is fine. But when you're driving, if if you're driving and you're, you're paying attention, you're responsible, you're paying attention, aren't you? That's all we're asking. You're sitting, except what, you're not driving a car. You're driving yourself. You're right there you know, in open attention, choiceless awareness, uh, with or without the breath as a help. The breath is always there anyway. Um, you're alert, but not strained. You're just alert, and uh, you don't know what's next, whatever is next. That's what we're learning. We're learning how to be supple and alert. Uh, in daily life, you can use the breath sometimes. Uh, sometimes people make a, it, uh, make a formula out of it as a practice. You can do that. Many of you no doubt have read Thich Nhat Hanh. He has lots of little exercises like the phone rings and you stay with two or three breaths before you pick it up. And that helps you uh, be settled and listen. Uh, the breath can be used whenever you need it in, in daily life. But remember, its value is in the service of helping you to stay awake. Don't become, try to set the Olympic record for continuous breath awareness and drive into a Mack truck. It's not about the breath, finally. In a profound way, the breath is to help us stay awake. The whole practice is about that. Insight grows out of is clear seeing, seeing into. Um, daily life. What was left out was a relationship, right? We didn't get to, there are hints at it. Um, when we get back, things change. Here, we are silent. Lots, what correct action here is to follow the schedule as best you can. 
uh, to maintain the silence, and so forth. When we leave here, exhale it. It's over. It's ancient history. Of course, you may want to share what happened with friends when you get home, or that's fine. But uh, don't uh, do it in such a way that you're not home, that it keeps going on and on and on, and that you're not really present. Um, Relationship is the hardest one for all of us. Now, I'm speaking about people. But actually, uh, if you, one way of characterizing what the Buddha is talking about that is, it's a strong word, but perhaps it, it applies, revolutionary, <coughs> radical, is that we'll, we're examining the very same mind and body that everyone has. We're no different. We're just human beings, all of us. Uh, but what's different is uh, what Michael called attitude. It's an approach. How do we, re relationship is not just to people. In other words, uh, in a moment I'd like to spell out briefly, but I hope clearly, and I'll do my best, how relationship uh, helps you learn about yourself. Relationship to nature. If you, if suddenly you're in nature, you have a, re a reaction or a response. We're learning how to stay in touch with our inner life as we live so-called outer life. At a certain point, this, you'll see that inner and outer are artificial distinctions made by the mind. It's just we're alive. But mostly, let's say, so there's nature. And some people completely walk right through it, don't notice anything, flowers, nothing. I'm not saying it's bad right now. It's just if you pause, you realize, oh, I, I'm not really connected with nature. I'm figuring out my taxes while I'm in this beautiful, uh, lush, wonderful piece of, uh, of uh, natural, uh, nat natural order. Uh, and, other, and other people are just so open to nature where they're really moved. Relationship to objects. Some people have no respect for objects. Uh, the, the cook, uh, the, if you recall, I used Dogen's example in Japan. One of the things he emphasized is how carefully you have respect pots and pans and cups and dishes, certainly in, with tea and with everything. That's part of life. So that, what is your relationship to objects? What about money? So all of these are teachers. So it's a different way of relating to it. It's not, I'm not telling you how to manage your money or what you should do with the objects you have, but more, if you pay attention, you'll see that you have a relationship to every aspect of your life. Life is movement in relationship. And of course, uh, people, uh, things, nature. Um, if I've left something out, it does, it's, it's included. But first and foremost is what? It's your relationship to yourself. Because that's what you bring to everything. Now, all of these different aspects of being alive, as they come through the sense doors and we experience them, they're potentially teaching us about ourselves, if you're willing to pay attention. The great teacher is, of course, other people. My own experience, and this is what I meant, that we have to learn a practice that, look, be being in relationship is difficult for the human race. Uh, if you look at our history, um, we haven't learned much. Technologically, scientifically, we're geniuses. In terms of learning how to live together, it doesn't seem like much has changed. We don't use clubs and bow and arrows. We just vaporize each other. But what's the difference? It's worse in many ways. It's so impersonal. So we've misused science, perhaps, and technology. 
So that gets back to the mind. The problem isn't the atom bomb or nuclear weapons. It's the mind that needed to, to use scientific truth to invent that and then to use it. And then all the, the, all the spin-offs and the latest this, that, and the other. So apparently, uh, and if you read the ancients, not just, certainly in India, it was very highly developed. That's, that's where the passion was. But it, the ancient world, perhaps because there wasn't such uh, miraculous technological advance, what pe people weren't infatuated with all this technology because it wasn't there. And there was much more interest in going deeply into consciousness. It's not just in, uh, in yoga and in Buddhism. It's in all, in all the mystical traditions, as far as I excuse me, can tell. Um, we've lost that. Somehow that is you know, for the old timers. It's coming back, but it's coming back in a new way. And now, as I've tried to sketch rather briefly, it's in our, the ball, it's in our, it's in our ballpark? No, is that what's, whatever the, what? It's in our court, that's right. I'm trying to be, you know, contemporary and. <laughs> I'm really out of it, but anyway. Um, it's in our court. Uh, and Look, a lot of reasons, if you, having lived with monks, for example, here's, here's a common joke. Uh, when I was with Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was a, a Thai forest monk, a wonderful, wonderful human being and teacher, I learned a great deal from him. Some of the jokes were all about um, he would do it, and so a lot of the monks would do it, sort of like people, uh, they see what marriage is, and in spite of that, they jump up and volunteer for the job. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Okay, well, we know there's some truth to that. <laughs> uh, or to, uh, it's, it's not for sissies. Relationship is not for sissies. But some of the reasons, look what, what uh, typically the monastic tradition does. It's a strategy. And for some people, it, it works beautifully. You don't have, uh, let's say, a gender, whatever gender, that kind of attract, that's, you don't do that. You, you don't, food, clothing. You cut down on all these aspects, which usually become problems for us. Money, power, fame, sex, and so forth. Okay. So you, you intentionally limit that. We call it monastic life. Okay. Sometimes that itself brings up problems. But the reason we do that is because apparently it's difficult. And it's very hard to get free if you're trying to pay bills and uh, children are just, you're just giving birth, all these things that go on. But it's also uh, true that that's where we are right now. And relationship is where the whole human race has failed. It's, this is not, so the monastic strategy uh, is based on the fact that of observation, my goodness, it's difficult to, to live in the world uh, in a life where you have to work and a family and school or whatever you, your life is made up of. And so you just, scoot out of it. And for some people, that's a good choice. I'm not saying there's a right or wrong way to live. You have to find out what the best, how are you to live? Socrates is right. The great question, how, am I, how is one to live? Everyone has to find that out for themselves. No one can do it for you. Okay. So uh, there's been no end to war. Does it? There's been no end to interpersonal strife and competition and backbiting and resentment and betrayals. You know, it's every drama, films, news, it's all filled with dukkha. 
It's all greed, hatred, and delusion parading around. Watch the news sometimes, or watch any most films or, or plays. They're great teaching, teachings on how to assemble suffering. Some of them are brilliant. If something is a great novel, like if you read Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, he's brilliant in showing you how to suffer. If you want to, well, I don't suffer enough. Let me, let's see what does Tolstoy have. Uh, he'll, he'll give you, it's just brilliant. But there's no, is there a way out of it? What the Buddha was concerned was, is this necessary? Is there a way out of this? In other words, if we're creating it, can we, in our language now, I have a few contemporary words, can we deconstruct it? How's that? Maybe that's old, old now. Um, okay, so this is not saying that lay life is superior to monastic life. I want to make that clear. It's also not saying that daily life, uh, sitting, it's cute, but uh, that's for monks and strange people who just, they don't know how to live, so they just go and sit all the time. I'm not saying that. I think sitting is precious. When you teach daily life, my experience has been when you emphasize it, people tend to neglect sitting and retreats. So then I shift over and I put energy into, oh no, sitting and retreats, then they neglect daily life. So then I run over here. How about daily life? And then they neglect sitting. So see if you can understand that there's just life prior to all these forms that are human invention. It's just life. Wherever you go, here's this situation. What's correct action here? Driving? Then drive. Your family or someone is there to greet you and there's hugging, hug. 100% hugging mind. Just hugging. Whatever is next. Taking out the garbage, garbage mind. Well, you already have that. Okay. <laughs> Different kind. All right. Our job is to recycle that garbage, by the way. We, it's, and in this sense, it's not a bad image. Uh, because awareness does something to it, it fire, and it does something to it and changes the energy so that it's actually nourishing for us. Um, so what, the challenge for us, and it is quite a challenge, but I don't see a choice personally, is to, uh, if relationship is so difficult for all of us, um, there is a Dharma teaching, if you apply it to this, it's just perfect. What it says, there are a few of them actually, is that a bad situation is a good situation. From a Dharma point of view, it's different than what most of the world thinks. We just want good situations, and there's nothing wrong. Try to maximize the good situations. But no matter how hard you try, you can't. You get some and you won't get some. You, it's up and down all the different oscillations of life. So how is a bad situation a good situation? It's, again, it's in this new way of approaching it, a new way of relating to it, so that now we use what happens to us to help set us free. Now, in relationship, uh, how does that help set us free, Whether, no matter what the relationship is? Now, when we teach in Cambridge, uh, Michael and I, and some of you know Narayan, we're not couples counselors or family therapists. We, we, we're not trained to do that. We don't know how to do that, but I'll speak to myself, for myself. All I'm trying to do is to help people pay, bring Dharma principles and practices to a realm that's usually neglected. And so relationship often is we spend the energy blaming the other person or projecting it onto them or constantly telling them how they can fix their life up. And this is, is turning around saying, how... How about you? Okay. It's saying don't lose touch with your inner life as you pay attention to other people, not just intimate people, whatever. 
uh, wherever, wherever the, they turn up in your life. Okay. Um, when you're in the presence of another person, typically, uh, that, that's a mirror. That is because we have reactions to people. Sometimes a reaction might be uh, you put some money down, you pick up the, the New York Times in the morning, and you don't even notice the person who's giving it to you. Well, then that's what happened. You, there's no human contact there. I'm not saying it's good, bad, or what, but it's just true. Okay. At other times, someone gives you the paper, and there's a little bit of a snide uh, look on their face, and you walk out, I'm not going to buy my paper here anymore. You know, so we all, so there's stuff going on. It's very rich, because it's a mirror in that it's teaching you about yourself. From this point of view, the world exists in order to be, life is here to be lived, but it exists in order to set us free. That's, again, a weird Dharma attitude, that everything, this can set us free. So that let's say people in your life, they push a button. That image is a pretty good one. They push a certain button. If you can more and more take it on as a practice, that is, you're aware of the reactivity that has had, you can't help it. Reactions are conditionings. They, uh, we don't have control over them. They're our past. And someone pushes a button, you get a certain, you push orange, you get an orange drink. You push another one, you get a different drink. So it pushes the anxiety drink. It pushes the, the uh, anger, whatever it is. The difference is we're learning how not to be a fool, but to stay in touch with that and not lose touch with, let's say, what precipitated it with the person who, uh, who stimulated that reaction. As, and that's, I'm not saying it's easy, but if you don't get discouraged, you can learn it. It's like anything else. Just like Hokusai, he's learning until he's over 100. We're not going to master it. But the process of living and learning itself is quite rewarding. It's very rich. And life is lived in the present moment. And if you have people in your life, especially intimate ones, who are willing to do, to some degree, do this with you, it can be very, very wonderful. But even if a person isn't, even a person isn't, if you begin to change yourself through seeing the reactivity, when you're aware of a reaction, it loses its potency. And as you become a bit more proficient at that, sometimes it just falls away and there's silence, just clarity. And out of that can come a response can come a response. Let me give you a simple example, uh, and then I think I will uh, I'll stop, and then we'll have a few Q, some questions and answers. Because I've seen this, I don't know, five, six, or more times in Cambridge with parents. Let's say um, uh, a parent uh, is, tells the child when they get to be a certain age, clean up the crumbs after you eat, and the child doesn't do it. And then they don't do it, and you keep telling them. They're, and at a certain point, for God's sakes, how many times do I have to tell you? And before you know it, there's impatience, and, and you're still trying to teach the child to clean up after them. And then the child rebels. Sometimes they clean it up because you're right standing over them and so forth. But it's, a, it's a, a mechanical dance, and there's not much joy in it. Now, parents who've been willing to do this, uh, they, they become aware of their reactivity about how they're becoming impatient. It can be very subtle. Because you have love for the child, and yet you can't deny that somehow something they're doing is not working. And no matter how much you, you beseech them, they don't listen. They don't want to hear, or they can't hear, or it's not time yet, or whatever the reasoning is. But this is about us. So as you become able to not lose touch with your inner life while attending to the child, that gets weaker. 
the day can come, and this is, this, I'm reporting clinical findings, a few observations that are scientifically, medically uh, inclined. Okay, and what, you may say the very same words, but the energy is totally different if it's a response. I'm using response instead of reaction. Reaction is I'm using these words, the English words. One is conditioned, mechanical, comes out of our past. A response comes out of no place, fresh. And it could be the very same words about cleaning up and how necessary, but the energy is different and the ch children are much more likely to listen because they don't feel that as whew, coming at them, that uh, somehow their integrity, burgeoning integrity is, is starting to be assaulted, uh, that uh, it's just mommy or daddy just uh, telling them something out of love, that growing up includes cleaning up after yourself. Uh, that's a simple example, but they're rampant, and it's not a fixed thing. It's a process, life goes on. Uh, you start to become more sensitive to your motivations, why you say certain things, why you do things. What did you really mean by it? And it's not by chronic introspection, which we already know how to do. Those furrows in your brow that you're rubbing creams in to get rid of, <laughs> the creams are not going to get rid of it. Uh, the chronic introspection put it there, so let's work with what put it there. Um, this is not that. It's enjoying the... This is what... Look. If you, read, if you haven't picked it up, Hokusai is enjoying the process of art, of drawing. And in it, he's saying, uh, I've, maybe I'll learn how to draw. I haven't read it in a while. Draw a line, I don't know, when I'm in my 80s, 100, whatever it is. Um, here's someone who's a world-class artist, a great artist. And he's, he's, uh, he's enjoying the process of refining his life. Uh, and if you enjoy the process rather than set up some goal of uh, some ideal of being the perfect something or other, or like your teacher or like some other person who you admire, which is a sh uh, an invitation to suffering. So all I'm saying is it's, a, it's an invitation for you to bring awareness into your daily life with the attitude of seeing, listening internally and externally, and learning. Uh, the choiceless awareness is giving you experience of being with all kinds of mind states. And as you get better at that, you'll see that that, to some degree, helps you be with all kinds of situations that come up. Life is unpredictable, and it's not necessarily the way we want it to be. Any questions? Anything? Yes, please. <clears throat> I think the whole human race has uh, attention deficit. What are all the hyperactivity? Oh, it's not just attention deficit; it's also hyperactivity. Isn't that everyone? In a profound, I, I understand. I, I do. Um, if you heard that uh, Wall Street Journal thing I quoted the other day, but look, I don't know. Um, do you, uh, is it about yourself? Okay. Are pharmaceuticals involved? In some cases. Yes. Used, yeah. yeah. Here's what I've observed, and I don't know very much about this. In principle, can this practice help? Of course. There's nothing special. It's just that you use this. What we're learning is how to not have any attention deficit. What we're learning is how to not be agitated. So could that possibly help 
somewhat, sure. But I know three or so cases where people have used pharmaceuticals and meditation. Uh, actually, I know a little bit more than I thought. Because what tends to happen in these cases, and it's a very small number, I don't have the opportunity to know much about this, is that uh, the meditation does help. People do become more steady and uh, more calm. And the dosage level, this, this it requires that the physician cooperates. That the, the let's say if it's a, a, a psychiatrist or whoever the phys physician is who's uh, working with the pharmaceuticals, uh, that there's some collaboration, that they have respect for what's going on and are willing to give tests periodically. So I think it can help. I don't know of anything any special way of doing it. Now I think there are all these specialties springing up, and there are probably people. Mindfulness is like a mushrooms everywhere. Mindfulness, mindful eating, mindful going to the toilet, mind, and they're becoming specialties. Cottage industries—they're everywhere, you know. And with websites, and you know, it's so. Look, it's maybe you can make a nice dollar out of it. Go ahead. Uh, but do you see what I'm getting at? Just this practice, I think, can help. How much it can help? I think it probably depends on how severe uh, the affliction is. Uh, in other words, personally, I don't. I, I think drugs should be the last, last chance hotel, but sometimes they seem to help, so I'm all for it if it's done properly. You know, with uh, a physician knows what he's doing and uh, collaboration, because otherwise the patient gets caught in between a conflict, and that's not good at all. Yes? Where would you recommend continuing the practice in New York City? I don't know in New York City. Oh, let me speak to that, though. It's a good question. Um, it helps if you have company, doesn't it? You know, we've had this sangha. Um, and let's say you go to New York City. There is a center in New York City, in New York Insight. Anyone here from New York Insight? Can you help this woman? What, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, but let's say you're from Nowheresville, America. <laughs> what? Michigan. Okay, Nowheresville, Michigan. Well, wait, Michigan's a good... I like Michigan. Okay, Nowheresville somewhere. Okay. Um, and there is, and first of all, uh, sometimes the office will have in the computer, there may be one person within range, and you, if you contact them, maybe you can sit together once a week or something. So it does help to have some company, but sometimes there's no one. Now, that's not fatal, because different strengths can be developed. Life is both alone and together. As some people can only sit if they round up a crowd. You know, it's like a Hollywood extra. You know, I can't sit unless 25 cents a minute. Come on in. Okay, just sit there and look holy. Okay. Okay. And some people can only sit alone. Okay. The alone folks, it might be useful for them to come to a retreat like this where people get in the way and uh, don't, you know, and all the rest of it. So they learn how to live with people in a certain way and they see how uh, defended they are and how. Uh, how they get upset so easily because people don't behave the way they want them to. And other people have to learn how to be alone. You know, so if you don't have, now you will have, New York has opportunities, but let's say if a person doesn't, uh, try to see the positive side of it, which is you develop a certain inner strength. Because either you do it, there's no one there to encourage you. Now, the electronic age has some real benefits, aside from books which have existed for some time, uh, teach, verbal teachings. They're now Dharma Seed, 
hundreds of talks. You can drown in Dharma talks if, if that's your wish. Uh, you might need, okay. Uh, so for everyone, it's nice if you have help, but if you don't, then see the positive side of that is you're learning how to stand on your own two feet, so to speak. Sit on your own two buttocks. <laughs> have to adapt it a little bit. Okay. Um, okay. But here's another statement related to it. Um, personally, to me, meditation, I'm using it in the generic sense now. Sometimes the way it's used, it's really synonymous with concentration. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with wisdom. As I'm using it, it's a magnificent art, the art of, because it's directly about paying attention how, as to how you live. The sitting and retreats and all that, these have been useful, brilliant inventions that have come out of our ancestors, human ancestors. You don't have to be Hindu or Buddhist. We're all in the same race, the human race. Okay. Uh, that can be very, very helpful. These are forms that have proven themselves over the centuries. Okay. And there's so many different styles, different techniques and methods and approaches. But in general now, um, to me, it's a very high art, meditation. It's a beautiful art. Now, if you are very new and you sat this retreat and you concluded it's not for you. You know, meditation is not for you. It was like pure drudgery. You just hated every minute of it. You don't see the value of it. Uh, you tried, you gave it, etc. Don't throw it out. Just, not, it's not you, because you already want to do more, right? So I'm, I'm looking at you, but I'm, I apologize. <laughs> You're just about New York, right? Okay. Okay. Uh, there are other forms of meditation. There's, this is a consumer culture, which has its pros and cons. And is there a mole for, for Dharma practices? Yeah. And it's growing all the time. What do you want? Tibetan Buddhism? Which kind? Uh, if you pick a particular sex, Sakya. Okay, which kind of Sakya? Do you want, uh, will you pick that one? Well, we have angels, we have Westerners teaching it, we have Tibetans who come, which one do you want? How about this? How about, then there's Chinese charm, but there's pure land. There's uh, Vipassana, Burmese, Thai, Laotian, uh, Sri Lankan, uh, Thai forest tradition. It's not one thing. I, we, uh, we've worked in this tradition. One teaching can be as different from the other as they're from different planet. They're all called Thai forest tradition. So um, if, if this really feels like it isn't for you, don't give up on meditation. Then go to the mall and experiment with something else. And don't give up until you find what the path with the heart, the one that it won't be perfect. I don't think you'll find a teacher who's perfect. I don't think you'll find a path that's perfect. Maybe you'll have better luck than I did. Do. Did and do. <laughs> OK. Uh, the teacher that affected me the most was uh, an Indian gentleman named uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti. Was he perfect? No. He could be a r real jerk. And he was extraordinary. Do I love him? Yes. Do, am I grateful to him the way I am to my own blood parents? Absolutely. And sometimes it was really, you know, you could just see he was not perfect. He was a human being. Uh, so if you're going to keep striving for the perfect method, the perfect place, the perfect teacher, uh, it won't work. Some of you, as you get to know yourself, you see that you'll see that you have fault-finding mind. Ajahn Chah used a very good example. Well, we have a few minutes. We can fit this in. Uh, Ajahn Chah 
um, who's a Thai forest man, so his influence certainly Michael and myself and a lot of the teachers who come here. And he had a very simple, earthy way. A lot of the great meditation teachers in the forest tradition, uh, uneducated from a rural farming background and very direct, immediate. They could as well have grown up in Brooklyn. I feel very at home with some of them. Uh, they just, so at any rate, there was one monk at his monastery every few months would ask for permission to go and sample a different monastery, a different teacher. Ajahn Chah would say, of course. He'd go. He'd, a few months later, he'd come back, and he'd say, ah, I didn't like it. So he'd stay with Ajahn Chah for a while. A few months would go by. Can I try this one? I hear there's a great, so, oh, of course. This went on for a period of time. Finally, Ajahn Chah said, hmm, this monk is like somebody who has fecal material in his monk's bag. <laughs> and he keeps shit. And he, keeps, he goes to all these different places and says, why does it smell so bad here? <laughs> What's wrong with this monastery? OK, check your shoulder bag. <laughs> okay. um, finally, uh, do you remember? Uh, Two talks ago, Mike was talking about how important attitude is. I think so much of what we've been saying is to try, for example, if you don't develop an attitude which genuinely sees your ordinary life as extraordinary, it's not, I have to use some language. I don't mean to romanticize things, but it's valuable that, that your life as it is is valuable. And not only that, just as it is, some of it is not to your liking. You're having a hard time right now. Some of it is wonderful. Whatever your life is, it's bound to change. It always does. <clears throat> Can our attitude change so that we see it as potentially, at least, and it's up to you, it's just as valuable in a different way as coming to IMS or any of the other retreat centers or, uh, so that you don't set up this fragmented dichotomy where the only place that spiritual things go on are in special places assuming special postures with special outfits, getting special names, and reading special books, and having a special look on your face, and all the rest of it. We realize that prior to all these inventions by human beings that can, uh, is life. And as precious and as valuable as this is, and it is, I love it. I, this is what I do. And I'm still not tired of it for, it's about 40 years now. I don't know, 35, 40. It just gets better, honestly. I hope it is for you. If not this version of it, try another version. But some way in which you start to uh, enjoy, see the, the gift of being alive, which we hear so much about in all religions, oh, it's a given from God and all that. We're not behaving as if we really experience it as a gift. We say sometimes we get teary-eyed, a little ceremony, and then it's gone, out the window. And then we go and kill each other off in the next minute where you can genuinely see that life just as it is has this it's so and as the mind gets clearer you won't need to hear people like myself uh, for example uh, a great master came back from china uh, uh, in china and he was he was asked apparently he had just he had attained a great uh, awakening and so someone asked him well what is enlightenment what is this enlightenment what's awakening he said what did you learn? And he said, I learned that the grass is green and the sky is blue. Okay. And I said, oh, for God's sakes, I already know that. Don't, don't we all know that? I guess we're all enlightened. But 
it's, if you hear what's being said, it's a different green for that gentleman. It's a different blue. It was, it's, first of all, for that to be an awakening, you have to disappear. There's no, it's not an ego looking at the sky, taking notes on it, uh, measuring it, and whatever, photographing it. It's you open up to it, and you open up to uh, it's beyond words. I'm explaining it now, which is open your mouth and you're wrong. That's stupid. Uh, if you didn't get it, uh, why enlightenment is, is seeing that the sky is blue and the grass is green, work with it. You know, see what happens. Uh, it's cold and it's snowing and it's raining and here's something of hope for us New Englanders and Michiganians. What are, what are people from Michiganers? No, what are people from Michigan? <laughs> what are people from Michigan called? Michiganders. And people from Nowheresville. Uh, let's see if I can remember it. Sitting quietly, doing nothing. Spring comes, and the grass grows by itself. That's the essence of choiceless awareness, by the way. When you sit and are aware, you're not, the nothing you're doing is not nothing. It's a different kind of nothing. But anyway, there I go explaining again. Okay. Uh, thank you all for, you've all been, as they used to say, circus. I mean, you've all been in there and giving your best. And I know for some of you who knew this, perhaps you've had to extend yourself quite a bit, and you're still here. You've still, you're showing up. So uh, we, Michael and I, appreciate it. We've all worked very hard, and I hope that to some degree some learning has come out of it, and your quality of your life is affected in a good way. And um, the rest is up to you. It's your life. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.